it's the equivalent of today, Prince William, if we imagine that he's single, suddenly leaving the country with Rishi Sunak without telling a soul, traveling across Europe incognito, turning up in Moscow to marry or try and marry Putin's daughter. Hello and welcome to the pod and it's Charles I's early life all the way up to the Civil War today. Now that should mean that we're all good for the 17th century and the Stuarts for a while. If they're your bag, you can get the Stuarts and the gunpowder plot, the trial and execution of Charles I, Charles II and the Civil War, all on this pod, so do check them out. Today, Mark Turnbull joins us again. He talks about Charles's illnesses during his childhood, his unexpected elevation to Prince of Wales, his lad's weekend to Madrid, the equivalency of which Mark described at the top there, and then the bad-tempered relationship between King and Parliament, which led to civil war. Mark reveals who actually began the civil war. Was it Charles or Parliament? Mark thinks he has the answer. Coming up, I've got World War II Italy with James Holland, the Vietnam War and the Malay Massacre, as well as our Books of the Year conversation when Roger Morehouse, Antonia Senior and Richard Foreman joined to have a chat about their favourite Books of the Year. Our Great British Commanders series continues with the controversial choice of Douglas Haig, or Butcher Haig as he was called, and much, much more. So please, listeners, I ask of you, help me grow the pod by giving a rating or a review or share with friends. I've had many comments in the last few weeks that are really touching, so thank you. But I'll stop gassing and I'll hand you over to me talking with Mark Turnbull on Charles I. Mark Turnbull, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Last time you were on, it was the trial and execution of Charles I. So thank you for coming to talk about Charles again, but pre-Civil War. Yeah, we're going back to childhood, aren't we? So we've gone from end, we're going back to the beginning. Indeed. So, yes, listeners, please forgive me uh, for arranging it in the wrong order, but it's actually Mark's fault because he was writing a biography (laughs) of Charles I. It's now out. It's called Charles I's Private Life, and it covers Charles from birth. And today, so it's a really exhaustive biography but today we're going to be talking about charles pre-civil war so our discussion today we're going to start with his birth well not literally with his birth but but from when he is from his childhood all the way up to the opening shots of the civil war and so charles is is and if you're interested in charles's end you could probably listen to this and then go back and listen to the trial and execution and mark it's fair to say is probably he obviously has a huge interest in in Charles, but I think is believes Charles has been misunderstood in many ways, and I think that's certainly true because most of us look at Charles through the prism of the Civil War, mm. and really the sort of forty odd years, his forty years of life before that, there it's certainly worth exploring. So, so Mark, if we just kick off with his, he's the it's important that we get the chronology and the family ties right, really, because yes, he's the son of James the first, James the sixth of Scotland, James the first of England, but it's not quite as simple as your classic father son destined to inherit the throne, is it? No, 
Oh, that's right. So Charles, Charles, when he's born in nineteenth uh, of November, sixteen hundred, he's the th the third child of James the sixth of Scotland and his wife Queen Anna. The third child and the eldest child is Arthur. Well, the, no, the eldest one is um, Henry. Right. Gosh, I'm making terrible errors already. Oh, um, you were thinking of um, Arthur and Henry VIII. Is I am. Yes. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, so so his eldest, eldest brother is Henry. Yeah. And he's actually... What, what was what was the the childhood like? Did did, did, did we know much about whether he got on well with with his elder brother? So 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 King James uh, and the the child. I mean, it was you might expect for the, for the times and and how brutal it could be, not exactly uh, the most stable of childhoods. But as they went, you know, James and Anna were were quite loving parents. The eldest son Henry uh, was a, a glittering, amazing, you know, child developed into an amazing young man then uh the the second born elizabeth who later became queen of bohemia so elizabeth of bohemia and um there was a daughter who died very young and then charles came along um so charles really with these two elder siblings charles was quite a sickly child when he was born uh, a rush christening because it, it was thought that he wouldn't survive he did survive he clung on to life and the first few years of his life were extremely difficult for him, debilitating illnesses, not being able to walk and talk for, for a significant period in those first few years. Uh, you know, and imagine you, he's in Dunfermline Castle. That's where he was born. That's where he grew up and he was placed in the care of Lord Fivey. Not sure if I've got the Scottish pronunciations right here. Scottish listeners can, of course, email their fury. <laughs> but he's because he's born when James has not inherited the English throne. That's right. Yeah. So at that particular point, 1600, James is um, king of the Scots. He's been king of the Scots since since he was one year old. But it's it's been a very turbulent time for James. You know, he's had kidnap attempts. You know, he. Uh, Stephen Fearpin's biography, you know, read that excellent, you know, that tells just what James went through in his early life, being sort of manipulated by ministers, uh, abused uh, as he was growing up. And then he, then he, as he became king, he eventually seized some sort of control back. And that, that involved a lot of plots, kidnap attempts. And on Charles's birth, the day that Charles was born, James had had the bodies of the Gowrie brothers. These are these are two brothers who had um, kidnapped the king and, and perhaps, you know, it's thought tried to kill him. We've only really got James's sort of side of things because, as I say, they, they, they were killed in the attempt. Um, but certainly James had a long history with the Gowrie family and he had their bodies hung, their rotten corpses hung on the day that uh, that Charles was born. So particularly gruesome shadowing considering Charles at that point is clinging to life as well. From from that beginning, you know, Charles goes, it's a very slow start, but eventually it does go from strength to strength. You know, there's, there's definitely a, a, a loving relationship between the king and the queen and their children. Anna's a loving mother, James is a, a, a daughter father. And it's only as his heir, Henry, grows older that there becomes that rivalry i think between james the king and his eldest son but there was never that rivalry 
really with Charles because Charles was the spare. Charles was the the weaker one, you know, seen as the weak one, the, the ill one. Uh, it's quite sickly. So, so James had nothing to be threatened from Charles. And uh, as I say, he grows up at Dunfermline Castle under the care of um, this uh, leading Scottish minister and his family. And, you know, you've, you've got all he's got a lot of daughters of varying ages, uh, all older than Charles. Uh, and I can just imagine this small boy, this baby, you know, and around him, he's seeing these girls doting on him, playing. Uh, and as he gets older, as Charles gets older, he can't he can't engage, you know can't really speak he can't really walk and the frustrations that that must have brought as he's getting older you know three years old and he can't walk um he's has a nanny sort of leading him down the corridor trying to help and do we know i mean it's always difficult in history to diagnose people through three four hundred years ago do we know what it was or what kind of illness he was suffering from, or illnesses? It is thought, and it's. I've read papers that have put forward rickets as one of them, so his joints weren't knitted together at the time when, when James inherited the throne of, of England and he travelled south. The whole family eventually followed him, but Charles has left in Dunfermline on his own, so he's the last member of the royal family that's that's in Scotland, and, and that's because of health. But the, the physician that James sends north just to, check you know in 1604 so in charles's fourth year you know whether he's fit for that journey the physicians finding you know his teeth and his stomachs you know not in the in order again joints are mentioned not formed properly joints and can't walk and then you get some reports from the physician really which you could claim that they are um, made to look better than they are because you know his ultimate goal is to get charles south to london um, so really, he needs Charles in a fit condition. So potentially, he's over-egging the, um, the situation. And then when Charles does eventually get south, I think that's when maybe some of the reality kicks in and uh, the man that takes over care realises that Charles is in a really vulnerable position, Can't, still can't walk really, can't talk properly. How old is he when he's, he heads south? So he's just a couple of months before his fourth birthday when he arrives um, at the court in England. Um, and, and what a mammoth journey that was, you know. So it, that's another thing that you it's can't It's a mammoth journey now with the yeah. useless train system. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back then, you know, he's traveling, he's, he's stopping off at, at various points along the way. Uh, and you, you see him, and this is what a what I found when researching the biography, he's actually uh, stopping off in Yorkshire uh, at the seat of uh, the Straffords. So, well, I should say the Straffords, the Wentworths. Now, the 11-year-old, I think Thomas Wentworth was 11 at the time when Charles is three and stopping off at, at that family seat. And uh, Wentworth, Thomas Wentworth, obviously went on to become Earl of Strafford and Charles's chief minister. And it was his death, it was Wentworth's, execution that Charles never forgave him for but that meeting curiously you know he he was at that house uh with the family age three could those boys have met at that point could that be the first meeting of Charles and Thomas Wentworth Earl of Strafford um and then you know a little bit further further down country um there's notes to say that that Charles is thoroughly enjoying this this trip you know he's uh, watching the game being brought back from hunts perhaps is that where his his love of hunt the hunt started dancing music you know he calls for music you know he's quite a quite a jolly 
uh, little boy considering everything that that he's going through but this must have just been his life starting you know from the confines of Dunfermline people are flocking to him to see him you know he's no longer in irrelevance um, but what has stuck with him is that sickly start and I find that even now you know even when we look at historic royal palaces who produced a video of Charles's execution it really um and this was a couple of just a couple of years back it really goes to town on henry seeing how great henry was when it comes to charles there's very little said apart from sickly you know uh, nadine ackerman when when her biography of elizabeth of bohemia charles sister was published the leading newspaper headlines were weak brother and um and and that that sort of that it's that opinion that's one of the things about charles that's just carried forward that he was nothing really but just a sickly child until perhaps he was 11 or 12 but um, he must have been mentally strong to get through all this and completely yeah and and i think that's that's the the really interesting thing here you know so he he goes on to, and, and there's siblings that follow charles but there are three of them and they come and go so Charles always ends up being the youngest child because they die young. Now, for him, on such a shaky ground when he was born, I, I really um, can't help but think that he he would, uh, across his life, have thought, well, why me? Why why did I survive? What does God have in store for me? You know, why is he? And at that particular point in time, people did look for near-death experiences as God's favour, you know, God sparing them. And Charles certainly had a lot of those, you know, he must have must have thought. And then when Henry died, when Charles was 11, you know, it must have been, well, actually, what is God's plan for me? You know, um, he he's put me in that position of being king. Uh, and of course, that feeds into divine right. You know, it adds that sort of the confidence, perhaps, that Charles was lacking as a as a person. It It makes up for that. When he, when he thinks about what he's gone through, he's gone through the gunpowder plot where he was meant to be bunked off with the rest of the royal family. So he would have died in the gunpowder if it had it exploded, along That's with right. his father yeah. and elder brother. Yep. So, so Charles had only just got to England in August 1604. Um, Parliament was meant to meet in 1605. It was postponed a number of times um, because of plague. And actually the plague saved the, the Stuarts, you could argue, because that gave time for the plot to unravel. And, and yeah, you know, you, you've got Thomas Percy uh, visiting Charles's lodgings and, and questioning some of the uh, servants there. What, what's his routine? Because they know that if they are to get Elizabeth, his sister, on the throne as a puppet queen, they need to eliminate not just James, but eliminate Henry and then Charles. How they were planning to eliminate Charles is uncertain, but he, he had to he had to go. Um, Henry would have gone to Parliament. He would have been blown up. There was talk of Charles going to Parliament. You see, dual guard has been made ready for for Henry and Charles. So there's a question of whether Charles would have been there. But if he wasn't there, then plans were afoot to kidnap him. I see. And so I guess that will become more relevant as he as he grows up and and becomes more firm on his religious beliefs. But with the death of Henry, you just talked about, you know, divine right and perhaps his childhood influenced that belief. Was the death of Henry when, I think Henry was 18 years old when he died. Uh, so Charles was 11 or was it 11 or 12? Um, 11. It was just before Charles's 12th birthday. And so did that therefore mean that 
Charles viewed from that moment, he thought, well, I am the chosen one in a way because Henry was such a sort of favorite son and yeah. you know, strapping lad. <laughs> well, that's, that's it. Yeah. I think, but, but just before that though, you know, when, when you've got um, Charles growing up, you know, he grows into a really robust, healthy young boy and then young lad, you know, he, he, doesn't have Henry's stature. He, he's not uh, muscular and athletic, but everything that he does is exactly what Henry does. You know, he he works the pike, he rides, he hunts. Academically, there's evidence to say that he outshone Henry, which was very interesting to find. So, you know, he's by no means a write-off, even from tender ages of two. You know, he's been suggested as a king of Scotland so that the Scotland retains the status of a kingdom. Ah, oh, split the um, throne. Interesting. Yeah. Just titular, really, you know, but at least it gives Scotland, keeps Scotland as a kingdom, even though James is in England and just pacifies Scotland as well. Just keep that balance between the kingdoms. Um, then you have um, suggestions, even when he's three, four, of being a viceroy of Ireland. Um, there's even suggestions uh, in the Spanish Netherlands that Charles, uh, his destiny could be to marry into there and get the governorship of the spanish netherlands be an english overseer there but definitely one of the the really quite interesting aspects i found in in those early years was venice this this um continuous evidence coming forward of venetian ambassadors paying particularly special attention to charles uh, and that he wanted to be a soldier in the service of venice and, and that's just totally at odds with what we think of charles especially at that age you know so you've, you've got biographies in the 1650s saying that uh, he, he was crawling like a beast until the age of seven. But actually, aged four, you've got Charles with an arcbuse over his shoulder marching up to the Venetian ambassador saying, you know, I'm going to be, uh, you know, your general, you know, and the Venetian ambassador is encouraging that, you know, saying, you know, you'll be a big, brave general, you know, sure that uh, you'll work wonders. It, it's a very tender image, isn't it? As soon as Henry dies. Charles Gores, you know, as a as a character, his person, Charles the man, vanishes because there is a tidal wave of emotion and a tidal wave of expectations that completely swamps Charles. Um, he has to be Henry, basically. And from that point onwards, he tries to satisfy everybody, you know, that he can be Henry. He can be as just as strong as Henry. He can do everything that Henry did. He can be a good king. He can be a good Prince of Wales. The, the burden of expectation must have been immense. And no more so than Henry's funeral, which, again, was just such a striking moment that he, Charles, aged 11, had to lead that funeral through central London. Uh, he was the only member of the royal family present. Uh, his father, his mother and his sister were grief-stricken. They locked themselves away. James uh, went into the country. He couldn't face. And this 11-year-old boy is leading this funeral procession through London um, and leading the, the nation in mourning. And it's so incredible. This is, this is, you know, I'm sure everyone listening will be thinking Prince Harry with his mother. Exactly. You know, similar age. It's a it, horrific experience. Yeah. 
and and that's exactly what I'd, I'd written in the biography you know that when, when we look at the comparisons here and there are there are so many strange comparisons when you compare the funeral of um the late diana princess of wales and prince henry in in 1612 so many strange comparisons uh, and there is charles aged the same as uh, the, the same age as prince harry uh conducting himself in the same way you know and, and you, you've got records that the public were um distraught in the streets you know and pe people are recording that they've never seen this level of emotion before in 1612 um and, and charles is leading this wow that that is so that so many echoes from 1997 and yeah yeah it's extraordinary we won't speculate I, I, well i guess you know one one could say that harry is um He's really fortunate not to have to go through actually being the monarch and remaining spare. But let's let's leave Harry for now. When he's now Prince of Wales, what happens with the coronation of as, as Prince of Wales, and how did that work? So, so really, and and this is this is where um, everything changed for Charles, not just in terms of what expectations were, but the dynamics with his father. So. James had never had that rivalry, didn't feel threatened. But as soon as Henry died, and he certainly did feel threatened by Henry, as soon as Henry dies, James doesn't invest Charles as Prince of Wales. He doesn't give him the lands and the income that Henry had had. Charles is very much kept under the cosh, you know, as if to say, right, we've seen how difficult that was before. Plus James, you know, and the, 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 the monarchy isn't a parlous position in terms of finances so really he he's lost henry he's lost the chance um at, at the in, any income from henry's marriage so at this point the lands devolve to the king the king doesn't give them to charles you know so charles is not drawing the income so really for charles it's no change there's the burden of expectation but there's no formal investiture there's no ceremony initially at least there's no income Right. So, I mean, that, that that's enough to, uh, that would irritate him, presumably. And I'm not sure that it would irritate him because, um, you know, thinking about the character that he was, uh, that was described up to that moment, he was always keen to please. You know, people say that he was sweet, kind. There's reports saying he's absolutely no politician. He's not the, the cutthroat nature of the court. He's not part of that. You know, he can't you know, Does that mean then he can be that. easily manipulated? Because he did have friendships. I'm thinking of Buckingham. You've mentioned Stratford later on, who were hugely influential on him. Yeah, and and this is this is the thing. There was all always that lack of confidence, um, which stemmed from from numerous things. But then, at that point, when he becomes Prince of Wales. He does have a solid core base around him. He's got his tutor, Thomas Murray, which, who is a very, very good role model. Uh, Thomas Murray um, is, he, he's, he's got Charles, he's developing Charles. So he, he gets um, almost war game models from abroad, brings them over to show Charles troop and sort of dispositions and things. Um, he also puts Charles, uh, with the king's permission, of course, he puts Charles in touch with foreign ambassadors, foreign heads of state. And Charles, the one area where the where King James doesn't restrict Charles um, is foreign affairs. So you have Charles having audiences now with foreign ambassadors and building up knowledge that way of what's going on in Europe. How's the balance of power playing out? Where's uh, Britain's role? 
what's his role? You know, because now he's not all not only inherited Henry's medal and, and art collection and books, he's inherited Henry's prospective wives. So he's he's put straight into that marriage market. Oh yes, um, we've got for, to talk about this disastrous trip to Madrid. Yeah. <laughs> but for ten years you you've got that hanging over Charles's head now is he going to take the Infanta is he going to marry France is he going to marry into another house that did frustrate Charles for sure and that brought a breach uh, uh, of just everything again so another sort of watershed moment when it when the crunch came on the marriage yes so let's talk about that he it sounds like a sort of a little bit of a a lads weekend extended weekend in a foreign European city, such that is quite common nowadays. But <laughs> this was between this was with Charles and his his big friend, his great mate, the Duke of Buckingham. It, it was, but what I will say is that Buckingham was not Charles's best mate ah. at the start. So, and this is where their relationship came. So, you've got Charles was actually Charles and his mother introduced Buckingham to James in an attempt to sort of oust. The, the other favourite. And of course, they introduced a monster, didn't they? <laughs> it took off. You know, James is completely under the spell of Buckingham. And initially, Charles clashed. He clashed with Buckingham. Uh, there was arguments. There was uh, disputes. Buckingham's given feasts to try and um, get his way back into Charles's favour, you know, as a young prince. But Charles was very much sidelined. Uh, and there was real resentment there initially. But then Charles gradually came to realise that the only way he could survive and, and, you know, get through this and maintain a relationship with his father, maintain his own position, was to get Buckingham, you know, maybe join them. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. It's from then, as James gets older and his health declines, the Queen passes away in 1619. Then I think people start to look at Charles, namely Buckingham. That's the future. Charles is the future. And Buckingham starts to curry favour. And that's when they begin to get quite strong as a, as a as a bond and a friendship. And Madrid, that Madrid escapade seals that friendship, really. But definitely not just, a, you know, a jolly, jolly jeep. I likened it recently, and I, I think you kind of got to do this. It's the equivalent of today. Prince William, if we imagine that he's single, suddenly leaving the country with Rishi Sunak, without telling a soul, travelling across Europe, incognito, turning up in Moscow to marry or try and marry Putin's daughter. In, in effect, that's what it's like. You know, you, you've got the big bogeyman in Spain um, and Charles has actually put himself, vulnerably put himself and his um, best friend in a position where they're in the court of their, you know, one of their biggest enemies. And trying to secure the hand of of the Infanta, which a lot of Protestants back in England certainly were not happy about. It's huge. With that knowledge, why why try this match? And why take this? And presumably it's a risk to go into the belly of the beast, as it were. Uh, absolutely. but And I think this is where it comes back to 10 years of pressure, not just on not just on the role, you know, and, and preparing him for, for kingship, but 10 years of added pressure on who you're going to marry. Are you going to secure a, a good match? And this will they, won't they continue for 10 years to the point where Charles got absolutely so sick of it that he told some of his supporters, don't mention it again. It was becoming a noose around Charles's neck. It was attracting a lot of unpopularity. 
Um, Charles, as an obedient Prince of Wales, it was what his father wanted. His father wanted that match with Spain to try and balance the, the power between Protestant and Catholic. He'd married Elizabeth. King James had married his daughter to a Protestant leader, the Elector Palatine. He wanted to marry Henry, but then Charles to a Catholic princess. But obviously it's not seen that way. So, so Charles wants to grasp the nettle. This has embarrassed the Stuart royal family for too long. Spain has run rings around the Stuarts. They've kept them neutral while Elizabeth of Bohemia and her, her husband, so this is Charles's sister and brother-in-law, they accept the throne of Bohemia. Then uh, the Catholic League move against them. They're forced to flee. Uh, and all through this, James maintains a neutrality because there's an argument that even if he did get involved, he couldn't have done much. But embarrassingly, no support really is seen to come from Britain, from her father, from Elizabeth's father. And and Charles, in the meantime, is being told to pursue that match with Spain. And, and obviously Spain's loving this because, you know, they've, they've effectively neutralised Stuart Britain and prevented them from going to the aid of Elizabeth and Frederick. And, and Charles grasps that nettle and says, right, enough's enough. We'll go to Spain. And whether it was Buckingham's idea or Charles's or both, um, they decide to go there to put the Spanish to the test and say, right, we are here. We are now going to conduct negotiations face to face. We want this marriage and we're, we're not leaving until we're, you know it's signed and sealed. But the other aspect to it is it's very serious because they're not only wanting to seal a marriage and obviously that secures the throne of Britain, you know, with Charles's heirs. Um, part of those terms, Charles is determined to introduce into those terms that his sister and brother-in-law are restored to their lands in the, in the Palatine, um, which is currently, you know, overrun with um, Spanish and Habsburg troops, Catholic troops. Uh, he, he sees that as the, the only way that um, those lands can be restored back to his sister and brother-in-law through peaceful means. Um, and unfortunately, but, it doesn't work. Well, yeah, it doesn't work out because, I mean, well, he does marry a Catholic princess, but not the Spanish one. He marries Henrietta Maria. Our listeners will may be familiar with Henrietta Maria. It's a fantastic book by Leander de Lisle. I spoke with her. I think about a year ago now, actually. And she, Henrietta Maria, is this very strong-willed from a from two incredible European dynasties, the Bourbons and the de Medici's. How does the marriage come about? And was it a good match, a, a match made in heaven? I mean, subsequent events would suggest yes, but was that what they what people thought at the time? You could argue that Charles was on the rebound, so he left Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> he left Madrid. He had seen Henrietta when he was traveling to Madrid briefly, act on, on you know, in a court mask. He then returns to England and is the, the, the primary purpose of Charles and Buckingham on the return to England is to get a war with Spain. They've tried uh, to marry into Spain. Uh, now they want war. And James, the peacemaker, you know, doesn't want war, uh, gets carried along a little bit send some troops across to Europe, but nothing comes of them. And there's a lot of embarrassment about that because, uh, again, it just shows Britain up, really. I think that's when Charles thinks, right, well, who am I going to marry? There's always that seesaw with France and Spain. So 
all through Henry's life and all through Charles's earlier years. You know, it's that balance. Well, if you don't marry Spain, do you marry France? Or do you go for a, a duchy, you know, a European duchy? And um, I, th I think really it was the mo most logical thing because it had been drilled into Charles and drilled into and a lot of people. Well, it's going to be a Catholic princess, but just who? Uh, and went, with Spain out of the running, I think naturally France was next. Yes, Henrietta Maria. So, I mean, we know we know quite a lot about her from Leander's discussion, but it's just interesting that's from Henrietta's perspective or as much as Leander can get into the head of Henrietta's perspective. It's interesting to know what you think from Charles's side of about Henrietta Maria. Well, I think the, there's, <laughs> there was initially an expectation that because Charles had done so much to try and secure the Infanta's hand, it was important not to look as though Henrietta was sort of a weak second choice or that he wasn't willing to do the same. So, you know, you've got situations where he's making it clear, I'm just going to jump on this ship and sail across to France and, and get her. Uh, and he almost has to say that because it looks lame if he doesn't do something like what he's just done for the Spanish. So, you know, there's there's such long delays for Henrietta and, and the marriage sort of being concluded and then coming across to, to Britain, that you know, Charles is pining on top of Dover Castle, looking out across, for example. Uh, and the correspondence, the gifts that he sends, Charles is invested in it. He wants to marry her. He's in love with the idea as well as the the, the portraits that he's seen. He, he is a chivalrous knight. I think that's the thing about Charles. You know, he has this deep-rooted chivalry. He wants to be a faithful husband family you know that 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 core honor of charles and um so i think when when they meet uh there's they're, they're certainly you know very happy you know they, they they both you know express happiness to meet um it's it's quite a a, a tactile meet charles is famed for being formal but you know he's embracing her sharing her and kisses um you know very happy very happy and um, this they travel from Dover back to Canterbury. He takes her to London. He wants to show her off. He wants to get into London um, because he's now king. Jesus yes, we haven't mentioned away. that. We should have mentioned that, shouldn't we, actually? Because his father dies in, I think, is it 1625? That's right. Yeah, March 1625. James was increasingly sicker towards the end. I think he was 58 when he died. And Charles was a chip off the old block politically. And I think a lot of people saw that and they weren't particularly happy with James's politics and what he did and, and his religious outlook. Um, but they would go along with it, not not least because they've seen the gunpowder plot, for example, and how devastating that could have been. Um, and, and it maybe worries people into compliance. But now you've got a new monarch. That's the time for these people to stand up and say, well, actually, we want something different. Um, and, and you hear that that murmur underneath at this time of it starting up in Scotland messages coming to the king's um, Scottish courtiers saying you know if you can do anything get him to reverse some of these about his father you know he'll be loved by all of his people if he just stops this policy um, well, what are the policies what are the laws that are that are causing upset in Scotland and in England in Scotland, religious-wise, so it's James's advocation of bishops, episcopacy, and James had started to take some amendments to Scottish, uh, you know, the Kirk and, and religion, and it was felt that Charles would continue them, or some Scottish 
nobles thought would be too weak to stop. And why didn't the Scots want this kind of uh, change? What they were afraid of is that, that he would continue this and take it to the next step, which James had failed to do. And that was the worry. And who who actually, who would have the king's ear? Because that those those people with the king's so ear. So it's a loss of influence amongst courtiers if if the if the these these changes go through. It's it's a loss of influence, but it's also a, a a complete religious wall. They don't want to mimic the Church of England, you know, and ultimately James had said, James had written in his, his texts for, for Charles and for Henry that the instability in Scotland was caused because the church didn't have as a pivotal a role and control as it did in England. Stability in England was as a result of um, church government and, and the Church of England being part of the state, whereas in Scotland that wasn't the case. And I think James would have loved to have brought Scotland in line, but he knew and he could see, you know, he had that political astuteness to see that he couldn't deliver it really. Or if he did, he could only do it by small steps. There was definite desire to stop that and actually reverse some of the steps that he took. And then in England, there was a, a desire for some political change as well, because again, you know, the king had patronised Buckingham. Buckingham had officers uh, galore he had positions galore money galore and certainly there was a a feeling that, uh, that the king needed to be reined in and the only way that parliament in, in england could do that would be on the purse strings so from the very start you know charles comes up he thinks you know well i've acceded to the throne he's finally fulfilled his destiny you know he's he's got genuine desires to be a good king he wants to stand up for the protestant cause in europe for example and uh, what he's met with is um and I, you know th this is not saying that simply parliament say okay well we're not going to give you the revenue income that we've given all monarchs before um but what they recognize is a fear that well actually well where is this going to go for us you know we want reform as well uh, and this new king seems set to deliver and just try and do more along the lines of what his father did. So it was very much, well, we're not going to grant you the income that we've given other monarchs for life. We'll give you it for a year. Now, Charles has naturally, you know, stopped in his tracks here thinking, well, I've got all of these expectations to meet. And now I'm being told that I'm not going to get these finances. Basically, you're going to be held to ransom from there. You've got the two sides. You've got Charles with a Catholic wife. You've got Puritan and staunch Protestants in England worried about that. Where will Henrietta Maria potentially take this? Where will Charles take it? A lot of Charles's religious tastes are high church, uh, which generates suspicion. Uh, and that suspicion's continued right to this day. You still hear people say, no, Charles was quasi-Catholic, which was just not true, even though we see... One of the reasons why he was executed was in his his eyes, he's protecting and preserving the Church of England as it was formed under his father and Elizabeth I. The high church thing, because I my my local church here is called a high church. And so for listeners, that's it's a service for listeners who maybe aren't familiar. It's a service I go at Christmas because my parents want to go. And so I have to go. And it means our hour long services they which more resemble catholic like services don't they uh, now yeah. i'm not saying that you know your your normal church of england type service 
is today is the same as it was in the 17th, in 17th century, but there's definitely a distinction between the two. So you can see why there is, a, there is, a, there's always, I mean, even you hear in the language today, there's a suspicion of high church. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, he, he sets about beautifying cathedrals, you know, he's repairing them and he's pulling down shacks and houses that have been built in the churchyards he's ordering things to be pulled down that have been constructed inside the 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 cathedrals and just stained glass even is enough to set a lot of puritans hearts pounded you know stained glass um iconography uh, altar tables the position of the altar table you know charles changes some of this and and this is deemed as uh interfering it's deemed that it actually is trying to take us back to rome by an extreme part of the protestant population see it as a attempts to just gradually take them back round about where are we now uh, during this time what what round about what year are we and and how do we get from there to more rumblings in the we get the long parliament and then yeah and then obviously the um the opening shots well, I think you've got um, from the very opening days of the reign right until 1629, you have that wrangle over finances, basically. That's what it boils down to. So Charles not being granted finances, Charles then engaging in various wars with Catholic powers. He even goes to war with France, so his in-laws. Um, and some of that is him trying to show, look, I am not Catholic. Um, I want to go to war and support the Protestant cause. I always have, but in the past, James was there blocking it. Um, Parliament saying, we're not going to grant you that money to do it unless you agree to to some, some reforms. It gets that desperate that he's plucking jewels out of the crown to give to departing ambassadors as gifts. He's got nothing else to give them. But the Duke of Buckingham's footmen are wearing raggy claws. You've got sailors parading up and down at clubbing Buckingham's uh, coach, um, trying to club that to pieces. You know, there's soldiers being ordered to rush to the mint to get some coins to just pay them off. It really is a desperate, desperate situation in the country. Ultimately, there's only a faint glimmer when the likes of Thomas Wentworth, who we've mentioned before, he's a critic of, of, of King Charles at first, but he's the one really that starts to push to give the king some, some financial grants. And um, eventually that comes when Charles makes some com- concessions called the 19 Propositions, Buckingham's murdered, so we're talking up to 1628. 1629, Charles dismisses Parliament altogether, and, and and that ends on a bang because they hold the Speaker in the chair and pass resolutions, even though the King's ordered them to to go. But in the meantime, I think what you've got there is Charles behaving differently to his father. His father would have clapped them all in prison immediately. Charles doesn't. Charles uh, is slow to react. And all the time, I mean, that there are he has problems in Ireland as well, doesn't he? I mean, it, it it sounds like he's got these problems from the religious side. He's got financial issue, financial problems, and then he's got a realm problem with Ireland rising. He's basically got a ticking time bomb, really, that's set off with three kingdoms being pulled together, looking for the war of the three kingdoms, the civil wars. What's the catalyst? then it, it has to be Scotland. Right. 
it was Scotland what done it. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think, okay. a few, yeah, many people might blame him, blame Charles himself. Yeah. I mean, certainly parliamentary forces thought that. How did we get to the outbreak of war? Charles, by comparison, is struggling to pull his nobles together. He's struggling to pull MPs together to go and combat this. Um, and it's testament to the, the the strength of character, really, you know, which we don't associate with Charles. He he pulled England to a point where he was able to raise a force and finance them and take that army to the borders. And it was only that army that stopped the Covenanters crossing from Scotland. The problem was it exhausted his treasury. So everything that Thomas Wentworth in Ireland had built up, all of the efficiencies and the savings that were made in those times where Charles ruled alone were exhausted by that effort. There was a truce at that point. Both sides then moved back and sort of took stock. Um, and really, I think both sides knew that they were up for another bout. And of course, there's a second war this time, England is woefully inadequate in terms of and the king. It's, you know, the, there's a lot. It's said that there's a lot of people in England that actually support the Scots. At that point, you know, Charles comes out of this and he makes such a, a, a such a good speech to the Council of Peers. Um, you know, he's talking about the shirt off his back. You know, he'll give the shirt off his back if needed to, to sort everything. A very impassioned speech, which has the effect, you know, people are, are, are quite impressed by it and he, he has that he's no failure completely you know he has that we could say that he's a field king but he has charisma that he does display at these various points these crunches. but it's only when his back is 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 to the wall it, it he produces he, yeah. he produces this sort of great oratory and you know he shows bravery yeah. but only when it's almost too late well, that's right. Yeah. So and that's the thing. If if sometimes perhaps he'd given way with more grace or perhaps he'd used a little bit more political nuances to get what he wanted, then things might have been differently. But he he back, he sticks his heels in um, and, and really sort of gives out a firm impression that he will not go any further. And what he invariably tends to do a lot of the time, he then gives that hard push. And then backtracks. So he 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 will eventually arrest some opponents, puts them in the tower. Uh, Parliament protest. He releases them. And that this the doubly I good. see the birds have flown um, entry into Parliament. Yes, yeah, so sixteen forty two, start of sixteen forty two. So you you've basically got six months, eight months of chaos with England being completely, you know, almost lawless. And then he starts to give way. And I think this is the thing when, whenever we talk about the Civil War, about Charles not negotiating. In 1641, Charles gives way point after point after point after point. He hands away powers. You know, he agrees that the bishops would lose their votes in the House of Lords. They're a body that were loyal to him. Uh, he agrees that Parliament should be called every three years, regardless, um, by law. He dismisses some some of his um, loyal ministers replaces them with opponents so he really goes further than ever when you think about the powers that he inherited um and at that point just not nothing's enough because you've got both sides at that point not trusting each other 
I agree that, that there was a point where he has to do something because as a king, uh, he can't watch his capital brought to a complete standstill. Um, and that's when he goes to Parliament to try and turn the tables and arrest five leading members, uh, hoping that it, it, it actually brings people to the senses. And uh, yeah, it, it all erupts. And so the, the listeners should be aware that this is a big no-no for the uh, monarch to enter into, into the House of Commons. Is that correct? It wasn't so much then. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't the done thing. That's right. Um, but I think when, when we say today about Blackrod knocking on the doors of the House of Commons, I don't actually think it stems from that moment. I think it stems from that time in 1629 when they hold the speaker in the chair. Because what Charles is doing there is he's in the House of Lords summoning the House of Commons to him so he can um, dissolve Parliament. But they refuse to go. And that's when the black rod goes to the door and knocks and they just refuse to go. So so Charles dissolves Parliament without the MPs being present in the in the in the Lord's chamber, which is a very big thing. You know, that that raises a lot of eyebrows thinking, you know, he's he's just gone ahead and dissolved us and he hasn't even done it with MPs present. Yeah, massive um, constitutional breach, really. Well, he would argue that he, you know, <laughs> his MPs have barricaded them in the chamber, you know, barricaded themselves in their chamber and they're refusing to um, dissolve and they're holding the speaker in the chair. So for him, he just thinks, right, well, I'm going to proceed. You know, that's, that's uh, you know, outrageous behaviour. Um, that's not constitutional. So I'm dissolving Parliament. You know, I mean, that's the that's the sort of immovable object against the unstoppable force of you've got divine right on one side. And I suppose really the parliament's belief in the Constitution on the other. I think it's desperation. I think, you know, there's two beliefs there. Neither of them you can see as sort of constitutional or. or oh, they're both the, the wrong. Norm. Yeah. Yeah, well, not not even wrong, I would say, but I just think it's got to that point where, you know, both sides are not going to respect each other's um, opinion and they are actually outright in outright hostility against each other. We're round about end of time. So relations between the monarch and the House of Commons are now completely collapsed. How do we get from that to armies on the march? I mean, Charles goes to Oxford but am I getting my timing wrong? How does how do we get to you know armies in the field? 1642, the attempted arrest of the five MPs, January 1642, it rapidly descends into chaos. You got Parliament in March of that year saying we want control of the militia, and that is a royal prerogative that is firmly within Charles's legal rights. He refuses to part with that. By God, not for an hour. Or he's saying, you've asked of me that which has never been asked of any of my predecessors. And Parliament say, OK, you're not willing to give it. Well, we're going to take it. So we we are we are able to say that we're going to pass that in the House of Commons, the House of Lords. And by law, we'll take it without royal assent. And, and of course, that is often seen as the break between the two. And I think that firms people up into the opinion of is this a really unlawful act of parliament that i can't support and the king is actually the the more lawful institution to to support 
or do I actually think, well, yeah, it's got to this, and I I agree that Parliament, for for their safety and for for ours, uh, a right to do this, they need that 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 militia away from the king, um, because who trusts the king with with an army? Um, and that's when you've got the divide. You get the point in April where um, Charles uh, is in York by that point. He's not very, got very many people around him. Parliament's talking about armies. He's talking about raising men. And uh, he raises a lifeguard. Uh, Parliament protests against that. He goes to Hull to try and secure the munitions in Hull. He's turned away by the governor who's been appointed by Parliament. So Parliament have already started appointing governors of fortresses without royal authority. He gets turned away there, very embarrassingly so. What you need then is a formal start to a conflict. Uh, and, 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 and at that point, the conflict is just England. So it is the English Civil War at that moment. Scotland are not in arms against the king. Ireland is in rebellion. Ireland has a rebellion of its own between Catholic and Protestant. Where's that point when formal war in England starts? And uh, a lot of the time it's said it's in August 1642 when the king raises his standard. Now, what, I, what I'd counter to that is some research that I was doing has showed, and, and that's where we see nowadays, we see the tyrant king who declared war on his people. But it's, it can't be further from the fact. Back, back in August, Parliament, before that standard was hoisted in Nottingham, Parliament had actually declared that they were intent on uh, raising men and putting their lives on the line for their court for their cause in in effect they are declaring war on the king's supporters not the king but his supporters and those people around him the king when he raises his standard three weeks later he's reacting if you've got your parliamentary body saying that they are engaged in a necessity to take up arms and they've commissioned the earl of essex to kill opponents in fact get the, the full wording of it it's something like kill destroy any opponents you can't sit back and do nothing if if that is not the start of rebellion for for any monarch then what what is so he has to do something and he raises his standard uh three weeks later and yeah the the rest is history the civil war has begun yeah. well it's interesting because so often Two things really that, that spring to my mind hearing that is that history is often a little bit more complicated. And so we shouldn't necessarily believe the second point that sprung to mind, which is that often the victors write the history, not all the time, but often. And in the Civil War, it's been that Charles went to war against his people. But as you've illustrated today, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the the problem with the civil wars and the wars of the three kingdoms is it's so complicated because you've got so many threads in it. You've got religion, you've got clan. And then in terms of the the reasons for the war, you've got social, you've got economic, you've got political. There's just so many threads to it that motivated people to, to go to war. You do have to step back sometimes and look at, well, is that true? Even though it's been said 300 years and it sounds like a good soundbite, is it actually true? Is that reflective of 
I mean, I was shocked to see that, you know, when when I read about that declaration from Parliament. I mean, that that sort of almost turns on its head everything that I thought I knew about the, the start of the Civil War that you read in history books, you know, mainstream history books across the years. Venetian ambassadors even writing home saying Parliament's just declared war on the king. Well, whenever you read about the Civil War, it's the king declaring war on Parliament. So... But then, you know, that that does open up other other avenues to say, well, actually, Parliament had no authority to declare a war. So you can't say that Parliament declared war on the king. But I think what we can say here is there was clear formality wise because they were both at each other's throats before that formality wise. It would be it would be wrong to look on the reason of the standard as the beginning, the official beginning of a war where Charles declares war on his people. Well, that's quite convincing. And for any readers who want to know more, I've put links in the show notes to Mark's book. And you've written an interesting article about what you've mentioned just in the build-up there about Hull and the siege of Hull. And so that'll be very interesting. And so, Mark, it just leaves me to thank you very much for coming on and talking about Charles I's private life. Thanks and very much, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for having us again. It was, it was Thoroughly fascinating. enjoyed it. Yeah, well, best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Please, please, please share, rate and review. And until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>